I had a mindset when I started this and it went something like this. I am volunteering to do something. They will make it easy for me. They will be so glad to have me (laughs) that they will pave the way. And in fact, what I found out was essentially the opposite, that the system puts in a lot of barriers to make it difficult for someone to give away a piece of their body. Welcome back to Donor Diaries. You were just listening to Martha Gershon. Martha donated a kidney to a woman she read about in her local Jewish newspaper. She's since co-authored a book, Kidney to Share, about that experience and has given presentations at more than 35 transplant clinics, medical schools, and bioethics centers on her experience as a living kidney donor. In today's episode, we discuss donor disincentives the factors that can make it very difficult for somebody to donate a kidney, even though they may really, really want to. There's widespread agreement in the transplant community that all disincentives to kidney donation should be removed. Even those who oppose offering incentives to kidney donors at least favor removing the disincentives that we're going to discuss today. Welcome, Martha. I'm so happy to have you as a guest today. Can you tell us a little bit about the landscape of living donation in the last few years? The last year we have good data for, complete data, is 2021, and it was a very interesting year. There were 19,184 kidney donors in the United States, and they led to almost 25,000 transplants. This was an annual record for cadaveric donors, 13,214 of those people were deceased at the time of donation. And as you can imagine, deceased donors can often donate two kidneys. So they often end up with more transplants. Even though we had an annual record for deceased donors, we had a drop in living donors. And that's because of COVID. Because living organ donation is considered elective surgery. In tough COVID surges, some hospitals have pulled back. So last year, there were 5,970 living donors. Two-thirds of those people donated to biological relatives or life partners, people that they knew and loved and had a vested interest in keeping alive. About a third, which would be 1,958, gave to unrelated people, so to friends or strangers or anonymous or directed donations. And I am one of those 1,958 people. I was a directed donor to someone that I did not know when I stepped up to donate my kidney, but got to know through the process. So it's a little bit of a hybrid. We still get to claim the altruistic title, Mm -hmm. but I was attracted to a specific story and my kidney went to that person. Can you tell us why you wanted to donate a kidney and who ended up receiving your kidney? It was a spur of the moment decision influenced by a lifetime of experiences. I had recently retired. I was a nonprofit executive director, had spent the latter part of my career working with families living in poverty. 
And I was looking for a project. And I read a story in the Kansas City Jewish Chronicle, our hometown Jewish newspaper, about a woman who needed a kidney. And I had one of those aha moments. I thought I could do that in a sort of uh, not humble, assertive way. There was a phone number. And I thought, well, at the very least, I can call the phone number and see if I'm a match. Now, there's a lot of history that goes into that connection and that decision. Living kidney donation is part of my family's story. I have a non-biological cousin from Omaha, Nebraska, who received a living kidney donation from a best friend in 2003. This is a cousin that I was very close to, uh, felt very strongly about, would have donated a kidney to save. We weren't even a, a blood type match. But this donation from a family friend let Anne live another nine years. And they were very important years to my family. She was at my son's bar mitzvah, my daughter's bat mitzvah. She was able to travel for my mother's memorial service. So I knew firsthand the family benefit, the family value of someone stepping up to make this kind of gift. I'd also known a living kidney donor. I knew Cheryl, who had donated to my cousin, and I knew she was still alive and doing great decades later. So I had a pretty specific view. So I like to think that my decision to try to see if I could donate to Deb was this confluence of reading the newspaper, which was kind of random, and this not at all random family experience. That's beautiful. And it makes me wonder, because I relate to your story, because I donated because somebody in my family, my father, benefited from a deceased liver donation. I wonder how many of us are stepping forward because we see firsthand one of our family members benefit and just see the, the sheer beauty of that. I think you're right. As I travel and speak and meet other living donors, there is usually something. Sometimes it's a bone marrow donation. Sometimes it's a deceased heart transplant. But this is a pretty weird world, right? The idea that we take a living part out of one person and move it over and put it in another person. And I think people who have seen it in operation or have some familiarity uh, aren't as um, impacted by the ick factor and are more embracing of the possibilities that this medical miracle can provide. I, I agree 100%. I find it interesting that you mentioned that you yourself are Jewish and that your recipient is Jewish. I say this is interesting because a very high percentage of non-directed donors in particular are Jewish. Why do you think that is? And what do you think the Jewish community might be doing differently than the rest of us to get people to step forward? I think there are two reasons that we see so many people in the Jewish community choosing to donate. One is very practical. There's an organization called Renewal in the Orthodox community in New York, which has worked very hard to sign people up and to help people learn how to crowdsource in order to find an organ. I think their interest comes out of some pretty horrifying things about Jewish history. We know what it is to try and be wiped out. And so we also know what it is to try and keep things going. And so I think this value on life, uh, while it's historical through the 
through the decades with Judaism is particularly powerful after World War II. The other reason, I think, is that we are members of a faith community, not necessarily specifically Jewish. When I was at the Mayo Clinic and talking to the nephrologist who would decide if I got to do this, he asked me why I wanted to, what my motivations were, and I told him the story. And when I mentioned that I'd read about Deb in the Kansas City Jewish Chronicle, he said, we see a lot of people of faith here to donate. And I said, why do you think that is? And he, he was pretty quick with his answer. He said, I think people who belong to a faith community have a sense of community, of wanting to help others. And he also said that he thought if there was one characteristic that the living donors he had met had in common, it's that they were essentially optimistic. Mm. And he thought that often tied with having a religious tradition, whatever that tradition was. I know talking to you, you're optimistic. I know you share that characteristic. Yeah, I'm an optimistic non-Jew, but I really like that theory. It makes a lot of sense to me. I don't think someone would go to this much trouble and quote unquote, take this much risk, um, at least do something this dramatically if they didn't have a core life belief that things turn out well. Mm. Martha, how are you and Deb both doing now, post-donation and post-transplant? The short answer is fabulous. Four years after the donation, my health is probably better than it was before. I feel really obligated to take care of the one kidney I have left. So I've lost a little weight. I exercise a little more. I am very careful with my primary care monitoring. And my numbers are as good as someone who has two kidneys. So I feel very good about my long-term health outlook. Deb is doing great in Fort Lauderdale, except she's almost never in Fort Lauderdale. I can see from Facebook, and then sometimes she texts me, she's traveled the world since she received my kidney. I always laugh. She went zip lining in a Caribbean country and sent me a video. And I tell her the other kidney is jealous because it is never going zip lining. <laughs> or maybe maybe your remaining kidney was so happy that, that, that it got to stay in your body and didn't have to go zip lining. Maybe my right kidney is saying, oh, thank God I stayed with the same conservative <laughs> one. This is good. I think she's having a wonderful life. And the fact that my kidney could make that possible, it's terrific. After you donated, you very quickly wrote and published a book called Kidney to Share. Tell me two surprises you found in your research while you were writing your book. Side note, Martha wrote her book with a co-author, John Lantos, who's an ethicist. Well, one of the most interesting things about writing the book was my discovery that John wasn't sure that living organ donation was a good idea. So I kind of knew he wasn't gung-ho rah-rah when I had decided to donate to Deb, but John's not a gung-ho rah-rah kind of guy. And so I just thought that was his personality. But as we started to work together on the book, my realization that there were well-meaning, generous, ethical people who questioned whether or not this kind of procedure was a good idea, both historically and in some contexts today, I think was very, very good for me. Mm -hmm. I had been operating from this assumption that anybody who would do this is a hero and anybody who would question it is an idiot. Um, but I knew darn well John wasn't an idiot. And so his helping me think about 
why we might not always embrace this intervention was very helpful. I do want to say I changed his mind. And I think by the time we finished the book, John too had become an advocate for living kidney donation. But it was helpful for me that he did not start out there. Well, good job changing his mind, Martha. What else, what other big surprise did you learn writing your book? My other big surprise was how deep the history of this thing we call organ donation goes. I came into this at a point in time when we already understood immune suppression. We already understood tissue type matching. We were already doing very complicated things like pairs and chains. But through John's work on the book, through the history, going back and understanding how hard this was in the beginning, how we could only start with identical twins because we couldn't suppress immune systems to accept organs that we think of as other, that our body recognizes as other. That history, which I didn't know anything about when I volunteered, was absolutely fascinating. We have come a long way, especially in the last 20 years. We really have. It's a miracle that anybody thought of this in the first place. And then the growing miracle of the evolution where today it's not a commonplace procedure, but it's not considered a terribly risky procedure on either side, either for the donor or the recipient. And that's really incredible. It is. Martha, in your book, you talk a lot about barriers to donation. What does that mean? And can you tell us what those barriers are? Barriers were really the reason I wrote the book in the first place. My, My frustration at coming up against barriers. I had a mindset when I started this, and it went something like this. I am volunteering to do something. They will make it easy for me. They will be so glad to have me (laughs) that they will pave the way. And in fact, what I found out was essentially the opposite, that the system puts in a lot of barriers to make it difficult for someone to give away a piece of their body. I ended up thinking about the barriers as falling into three categories, logistics, just stuff that was hard to get done, psychosocial, which were stigmas in our society that put a certain twist on whether or not we will allow someone to donate, and then financial, which is the actual out-of-pocket cost to a living donor to do this thing for society and for the hospital and for a person that I don't think we really consider going in. And taxpayers. And taxpayers. You know, something else I learned writing the book, going to go back to that interesting question. I didn't know when I started on this journey that kidney patients are on Medicare almost always, regardless of their age. I didn't understand that there's a special allocation in the Medicare budget for two diseases, ALS and end-stage renal disease. And so that after someone spends three years on private insurance, they go over to Medicare regardless of their age. And of course, everybody over 65 is on Medicare immediately. That means that end-stage renal disease, which is typically dialysis expenditures, are paid for by Medicare which means that every kidney transplant saves Medicare as much as $150,000. I had no idea. I assumed that 
transplantation was the kind of intervention that costs a great deal of money, but we're happy to do it to save someone's life. It actually is an intervention that saves a great deal of money and, oh, by the way, also saves a life. How cool is that? We're talking win-win. It is win-win. And dialysis is really expensive and that's paid for with taxes. Exactly. So every time someone donates a kidney, like you or like me, we're saving taxpayers money. So how did these barriers apply to your specific donation experience? Well, the story that I most like to tell, because I think it resonates with people and it's so telling, is the story of psychosocial barriers. And in the book, I tell two stories that almost kept me from donating. The first is that in the initial intake form, which is just a computer form, I answered every question completely honestly, because I thought, I don't want to answer falsely and either hurt Deb's health or my own health. So uncharacteristically, I decided to be bluntly honest about everything. And so one of the questions is, have you ever used recreational drugs? So I'm a woman at that time in my early 60s. I'd gone to college. Yes, I've tried recreational drugs. I have even made a trip to Colorado with my husband to smoke pot where it is legal. It's not legal in the state where I live. But yes, I have tried recreational drugs. So I wrote yes. This raised so many red flags at the Mayo Clinic that they called and said, before we even complete your blood testing, which is expensive, I understand that, we need to know that if you're a match, you will agree to talk to a substance abuse counselor. So I was a little put off. I thought this was kind of overkill, but I didn't want this to be the reason that I didn't donate a kidney to Deb. So I said, sure, if I'm a perfect match, I will consent to talk to your substance abuse counselor. Well, of course, as you know, I did turn out to be a perfect match. And when I was heading up to the clinic to spend three days doing the medical and social and psychological and financial evaluation to be sure that I was fit in every way to donate, they said, oh, but all of our substance abuse counselors are busy. We don't have any available appointments. I thought, good, I won't have to do that. They said, we need you to come back a second time. Now, to put this in context, I live more than six hours away from the Mayo Clinic. I have to drive there. I have to spend the night in a hotel. I have to show up for these appointments. And they wanted me to do that twice because they did not have an available substance abuse counselor appointment. This is both a logistic barrier. It is a financial barrier because living donors do pay for their own travel. It's also a psychosocial barrier. In the end, I talked my way out of the appointment. When I went up for the other tests, I kind of threw a fit and said, this is supposed to be convenient and I'm a donor and I'm not an addict and pot is legal in a number of states. This all is ridiculous. And they eventually took away that requirement. But I came away thinking that that was mostly because I was 61 and articulate, and spoke English as a first language, and was used to advocating for myself, and honestly, let's face it, because I was white. And I believe that if I had been a 30-year-old Black guy with dreads trying to save my mother's life, the whole pot question and substance abuse counselor thing might have really blown up in a bad way, and I might have exited the system at that 
point. Especially if you couldn't have afforded to come back for a second visit. Exactly. And I think not enough attention is paid to the financial barriers. When you sign up to be a living donor, they're pretty clear that the travel and out-of-pocket expenses uh, fall to the donor. All the medical expenses are absolutely covered by the recipient. I never got a bill. The Mayo Clinic never asked for my insurance card. Even the bottle of laxative I took the night before the surgery, when I went to the pharmacy to pick it up, they said, that'll be $12. And I said, I'm a living kidney donor. And they said, oh no, it's free. There's no medical expense, but my husband and I spent 12 nights in hotels near the Mayo Clinic for the surgery, for the evaluation. My husband took 16 days off work. The only reason I didn't take time off work is because I was retired at that point. But all of those things would be significant financial barriers for someone who wasn't retired with money in the bank. And once I learned that every kidney transplant saves insurance or Medicare $150,000, was really pissed off that they weren't paying for my night stay at the Marriott. So how did you get that paid for? In our case, we had planned to pay for it. Don and I are far along in our lives and our savings account is secure. But as it turns out, my recipient's family reimbursed us. I would never have asked them to do that. But they they called and said, please, it, it would be our pleasure. And, and we did say yes. But as you know, kidney disease primarily impacts uh, low-income people, and low-income people primarily know other low-income family members who might be donors. The fact that these kinds of travel expenses are not reimbursed either by insurance or by the government is really appalling. It is. And you know, I know in other episodes, we've talked about how you can get those costs covered, Um, And that there are a lot of protections and organizations that can help reimburse them. But I think one thing we don't hear about often is that the recipient can help with that. And I think it gets tied up with NOTA that you cannot pay somebody for a kidney. And so the recipient thinks under no circumstance could they ever give their donor a check for something when in reality, it's it's 100% allowed. And it's interesting. It's also kind of awkward right? I mean, here I'm I'm trying to do this good thing and I want to feel really good about it. And receiving a reimbursement check feels a little weird, but I also understood that the out-of-pocket expenses shouldn't fall on, on my family. Because of NOTA, Don and I were very careful. We kept receipts and I submitted them to my recipient's family, a little like you would um, receipts, you know, a, tra- a, a expense report if you were doing that for an employer. I felt like the doc- had to be secure. Martha, can you expand on how barriers have real world consequences, not just with you, but with anybody who wants to donate? So there's real data on this. Georgetown did a study a little over 10 years ago, and they found that out of 985 potential donors, only 20% got all the way to evaluation and only a total of 15% got all the way to donation. That means we are spending a lot of time and effort and money bringing people into this pipeline, but we are not successful bringing them all the way through this pipeline. And we know that a lot of times people don't go on to donate because of valid and important medical reasons, because it turns out that their kidney function is not sufficiently high. It turns out they have undiagnosed hypertension or high glucose levels. 
sometimes I've heard stories about people who went in to be evaluated to donate a kidney, and it was discovered that they had early stage cancer, that in fact, this evaluation saved their life because mm-hmm. another disease was detected. And I understand and recognize, I think we all do, that of course, living donors need to be healthy and should be appropriately excluded for medical reasons. But most people pull themselves out of the process because of those psychosocial barriers, because of those logistic barriers, because of those financial barriers. And that's really awful. It's even worse because there's a significant racial disparity in how this plays out. About 20% of Caucasian donors make it all the way through the pipeline to donation. Only 10% of Blacks who start the donation process are able to donate by the end. So these barriers that we are putting up are, are converting to health inequities. And I think we have a serious obligation to look at each and every obstacle we put in front of a living kidney donor and ask ourselves the question, is this necessary? Is it required? And what can we do to make it easier? By the time I finished writing the book with John, I had come to a very clear view that living kidney donors have a unique place in the medical system. On the one hand, we are patients, right? We enter the hospital, someone gives us anesthesia, they operate on us. We have post-op care, that makes us a patient. But on the other side, we are part of the supply chain, just like a pig's valve or the metal plate I have from when I broke my ankle 20 years ago. And I don't think transplant clinics have fully grasped the unique obligation to manage living kidney donors in this complicated way, that they are both patients who we need to treat with a certain kind of respect and care and part of the supply chain who we pay for and smooth the way. And I think when we come to understand the unique role that living kidney donors play in the medical system, we'll do a better job of managing them. Mm, I agree 100%. But while we figure that out, what advice do you have for somebody considering living kidney donation who is having a hard time due to these barriers? I would encourage somebody to do a lot of research. And I will be honest, I didn't do very much. I was pretty excited by this opportunity. And I felt I had my family story, which I knew so well, and I was ready full steam ahead. But what I would tell someone is, before somebody tells you you're a perfect match and the best chance to save another human being's life, Do your research on the front end. The internet is your friend. Books like mine, and there are others, are also your friend. Understand this is really complicated and really interesting. There are organizations that will provide reimbursement, for particularly for people who are low or resourced. There are organizations that will let people donate undirected in the way that you did, get vouchers to help other family members who might someday need a kidney, pay for certain expenses. This isn't one size fits all. There are many flavors of living kidney donation. And I would tell someone, step back, take a week and do a lot of research before you say yes. Mm. That's great advice. Well, thank you so much for being my guest today, Martha. I I always enjoy talking to you so much. 
It was wonderful, Lori. I've enjoyed every living kidney donor I've ever met, but you may be my favorite. Oh, well, thanks. So if you're considering donation and you're running into some of the financial, psychosocial, or logistical barriers that we talked about today and you need support, please reach out and we can get you connected to some resources. My email is connect at donordiaries.com. As Martha mentioned, there's an abundance of resources to help with these types of things and we want to connect you to them. You can also check out my show notes to get a link to order Martha and John's book, Kidney to Share. Thank you so much for listening to Donor Diaries today. If you're enjoying the show, I would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to subscribe and like the show. That helps us find more listeners, and you will also be aware as we drop new episodes. You can also join the conversation on Facebook. Just search the Donor Diaries podcast. Join us next month to hear an interview with Dr. Abigail Marsh, a neuroscientist who will teach us about the brains of altruists and psychopaths. You don't want to miss this one. This is your host, Lori Lee. Thank you for listening.